Greetings, and welcome to Momentum HSS, a podcast where we'll be exploring the diverse present, and especially the trends and coming futures of the humanities and social sciences writ large. I am your host, Darby Orcutt. I am a librarian, teaching faculty and researcher at NC State University, and adjunct faculty at the School of Information and Library Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. As someone who trains, supervises, and teaches current and future librarians, as well as collaborates deeply with humanist, social scientists, and those who support them locally, nationally, and internationally, I see constant needs for listening, for learning, and for connecting. My guests on this podcast are an amazing array, including associational leaders, funders, scholars with deep background in the themes we'll be discussing, and also individuals at different contexts and career levels, from student to conversations about the work of being a humanities or social sciences scholar, and the trends impacting these fields, including the intersections with new technologies, with data science, with greater emphases on public engagement, with desires and movements to promote greater diversity and inclusiveness within the academy, with interdisciplinarity, and particularly how social scholars increasingly collaborate with scientists, with the changing demographics and economics of higher education, and so much more. You'll notice throughout that these trends and themes constantly intersect and overlap with one another, and I allow conversations to progress naturally, rather than try to artificially constrain each to a single theme. Please feel free to listen to episodes in any order that makes sense to you, And as you feel moved, I hope you'll reach out via Twitter at Darby underscore librarian or more privately via email at dcorcutt at ncsu.edu. Above all, I hope you'll be as I am, inspired, encouraged, challenged, and changed by what you're about to hear. Dr. Kimberly Tron, my guest for this episode, is an associate professor in the Department of Psychology at Fayetteville State University. She is also a licensed psychologist in the state of North Carolina with a private practice in the community. Her research, teaching, and clinical practice areas are framed by a multicultural and affirmative lens focused on military, veteran, family mental health, college student behavioral health, suicide, trauma, PTSD, MST, anxiety, depression, substance abuse disorders, chronic pain management, stress resilience, and mind-body-spirit wellness. While at Fayetteville State University, Kim won both the Department of Psychology Excellence in Teaching and College of Arts and Sciences Outstanding Teacher of the Year Awards. Welcome, Kim. So as you know, this podcast is about the diverse present and coming futures of the humanities and social sciences. And I'm especially excited to have you here today because I think you embody just so many aspects of what can be huge parts of the life and work of social science faculty that are often left out of typical broad brush views of what faculty do. Just to name a few of those things, uh, much of your research is focused within minority communities. You balance a tenured faculty position with a private practice. And that faculty position is at an HBCU an historically black college and university. 
If you don't mind, Kim, I'd like to start with that last one. You certainly did your time at universities that aren't HBCUs. What was it that brought you or perhaps drew you to Fayetteville State University? One of the biggest things that drew me to Fayetteville State University was the idea of going back to the foundation as to where education started for uh, individuals like myself as a woman of color, uh, particularly one that came to the United States as an immigrant, to have the opportunity to go on, start a community college, and then end up with a PhD was to go back to sort of the foundations that allowed for this journey of my personal life to begin. And coming uh, from the West Coast, I actually, you know, was in California initially after we came here from Vietnam, was I heard of HBCUs much in a historical sense. I understood them through the history books. I understood them to be one of the most fundamental moments where an institution was built to accommodate sort of this idea or hope for a future that would be. And so when the opportunity came up, um, it was, that was, and it was coupled with the fact that it's one of, at next to, interestingly enough, one of the largest and oldest military bases. I thought, I really want to get the opportunity to be able to experience that and to work with students that in a lot of ways I could resonate with. You know, one of the things that happened was on during my interview, when I went, one of the students actually came up to me and said, you really, you're, you're from California, then you're from Texas. What made you want to come to North Carolina? And I said, you know, one of the things I do know is I definitely know where I've been. I'm so much more interested in where I could go. So in some ways, there was this sort of like, idealistic, philosophical notion. But as soon as I got to Fayetteville State, it became very real and very alive. And that's what, what drew me to coming to an HBCU. What, what do you find is different at Fayetteville State that you attribute to its HBCU history or status? One of the things about Fayetteville State University, it, it is a ever-present, changing, dynamic environment. You know, when you go there, the first thing is that you see, when we talk about the term non-traditional, it is definitely the embodiment of that. It has adult learners. Uh, I think our average age of learners at Fayetteville State is 28 years old. It has active duty students that come off from Fort Bragg and are there in their military uniforms to take class. We also have a early high school that is on campus. So you're seeing extremely um, talented high school students that are on our campus at Cross Creek High School that are taking courses um, in our classrooms. Some are as young as 16. Some are so amazing that they finish their four-year degree by the time they're 19 or 20. So when you put all of those sort of dynamic factors together, you start to realize that the learning is more than just something I can do as a faculty member. The learning happens because there's a an, a true classroom community that all comes together and all begins to learn from one another by just their mere experiences, their mere perspectives. And that became, like I had mentioned earlier, that became the immediate applied experience of these you know, ideals that I had around the fact that my interest is around diversity and social justice. It, it, 
you can't help but live social justice at Fayetteville State University. And the one thing that is also something that I think has to be lived as opposed to learned in a book is resilient and being resilient is something that happens as a day-to-day aspect of life at Fayetteville State. So that is probably the one thing that as soon as you walk onto the campus, absolutely, it is a historically black college and university, but it also embodies the inclusiveness, the idea that anyone in the community can be part of this community experience. Hmm. It, it strikes me as you're saying that, that your university uh, really seems to capture and be ahead of the curve on a lot of the uh, demographics that are changing with regard to college students in general, uh, in terms of students delaying college and predicted to be coming at an, at an older age, um, having uh, different life and family circumstances, and certainly the changing demographics of race and ethnicity. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things is it, it is an organic representation of what I hear in sort of other educational circles as the future of where higher ed would go. In many ways, it is just here. I mean, it's, it's already happening at Fayetteville State. And so certain things that uh, we had to react to immediately was, again, high number of transfer students that we have from community college in itself brings diversity to the campus. One of the most striking things is the first day that I started teaching, I immediately was tasked to develop two online classes. And this is over a decade ago. And it wasn't so much because there was, we think that the adult learner will come or we think that the military affiliated student would come. It wasn't that that we thought transfer students would come or even, as I'd mentioned, younger students would come. They're already there. So that became an instant spirit of following our student as opposed to kind of trying to determine where the students will be. And a lot of the feedback uh, that I got, real-time feedback from students is what guided my early architecture for online learning, for example, or hybrid learning, or in some ways, even the dynamic nature of face-to-face, because all of these elements of the diversity wasn't something that was just socially bound. It was also culture of life, culture of economic class. So, yeah, I, I think... Perhaps, I guess, looking on the outside, it may look like Fayetteville State was ahead of its time. I think in many ways, Fayetteville State was is always exactly in time with the students that come and study with us here. was researching a little bit about uh, Fayetteville State in preparation for, for this conversation. and I found something that I was surprised I didn't know. Now, you may not be surprised I didn't know this. I mean, obviously, you know, I'm a white faculty member of NC State University, <laughs> largest school in the University of North Carolina system, of, of which both yes. of our universities are a part. What I recently learned is that of more than 100 HBCUs in the country, Fayetteville State University is one of four in the UNC system that are ranked in the top 25 by U.S. News and World Reports. That seems yes. to me a statistic that the system should be bragging about that I should have already heard rather than only discover because I went looking for it. <laughs> right. But again, maybe well, that doesn't uh, surprise yeah. you. <laughs> no, it doesn't surprise me at all, Darby. As a matter of fact, one of the 
intriguing things about uh, sort of having these these accolades or these um, proof points as to what we're doing is that a lot of times, for lack of a better way of putting it, is that when we, we kind of present this um, this notion that we're you know one of the top four, I think it's sort of hard for um, it to get traction because of the fact that there are so many preconceptions of what the city of Fayetteville is like and what Fayetteville State might be like because of that. And for somebody who didn't grow up in North Carolina, coming to, to Fayetteville, North Carolina, it's kind of ironic. My um, my graduate school mentor is actually from North Carolina, and, and he was a little surprised. He said, you're, you're going to check out Fayetteville, North Carolina? I said, absolutely. Is that I found that a lot of folks in North Carolina had never even visited Fayetteville, but already had somewhat of a preconceived notion about it. And I think that that's one of the elements that um, are is unfortunate, really, you know, that sometimes in a less resourced communi- community, less economically resourced community, there are a lot of assumptions that are made as to what is possible if you are working with a far thinner budget than some of the other of your contemporaries in the system. But what I see is there's a, there is what I call the disadvantage advantage is that what happens then is a whole other different mindset or perspective or worldview that takes a look at how do you achieve the same things, but in a completely different way. And you know, so to that end, when I think about how we built online learning, we we built it completely out of sort of our heart and soul and never thought about, well, do I need training? We just did it. And we just kind of, I think, had the ability to take risks because of the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of resources, if you will. Um, so I think sometimes the, and if you ask me, the reason why this isn't widely known is because the pathway and methods for us to get there are are unconventional or atypical or mm. in some ways are hard to conceptualize you know so you know that that doesn't surprise me but in regards to arriving at the same place you know of having sort of the same sort of student learning or student engagement by taking a different road sometimes people don't realize you still end up at the same destination. Now, now, don't let me think, don't let anybody think that this is, this road was lined with roses and there weren't, you know, that was an easy path, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it still can't end up at the same place. And that's been sort of my observation for the decade that I've been there at Fayetteville State. And, uh, and I think that may start to change. You know, I, I think in the environment of this massive paradigm shift that we're going through due to COVID, Sometimes maybe that's going to reveal that the atypical, um, more challenging in some ways, resilient path still might come out with some outcomes that, that seem unanticipated. You know, that, that's kind of my take. Now, if it was up to me, I am certainly l- a loud and proud Bronco. Um, so I think that as long as I continue to kind of, um, sort of leave the island of Fayetteville and make sure that's communicated as many, as many different outlets as I can be. I think that's a good thing. I, I recently told a student who went off to 
get his doctorate in another state. I said, can you do me a favor? And he said, now what's that? I said, if you want to pay me back, because he said, how do I pay you back? I said, please wear your Fayetteville State t-shirt every Friday through your doctoral program and have people ask you about it. So I think, you know, that's sort of my remedy to um, us maybe being the uh, gem nobody knows about. Oh, that's wonderful. I think about, as you talk about that that different path to getting to the same place, I, I wonder what you think that we should be paying attention to, all of us, uh, from our faculty colleagues at HBCUs. What have been the aspects of that, that different path that, for you, for example, you think folks need to hear about? I think sometimes, and, and, and this is, yeah, I think that a lot of this is grounded in sort of my own atypical pathway through education. I, I think I touched briefly. I started in community college and I was actually a business major, I, you know, due to really no, not a lot of advisement and being first in my family and a lot of other of those identities and on Pell Grant. And sometimes there's a beauty in not knowing what you should have known because you just sort of, you know, fumble along and learn from getting back up again. And I didn't realize until I, my graduate studies that sometimes higher education struggles with the illusion of perfection. And it is important, I think, to to have part of your learning process be this sort of well-planned, perfect pathway. But its reverse is also true and sometimes not always as looked at or examined as a learning process as opposed to just a failure or a mistake. And one of the things that I sometimes say um, to students is the best learning experience sometimes is a class that you fail or the class that you said, how am I going to get back up again? How, what is it that I learned? I mean, these are like thankless teacher moments, right? They're not things that you would definitely want to put in your memory books, but you would thank because it taught you something. So one of the things that I would say is that there are a lot of elements of um, higher education that I think had gotten to the point where it was this idea that if you didn't do things exactly this way, then you weren't, it wasn't going to end up in success. Um, I think to kind of dovetail that is there's a whole suite of skills. There's a whole suite of learning and not just for the students. I think for faculty, I think for administration, I think for everybody as part of this higher learning environment is how we give in ourselves the opportunity to be perfectly imperfect, you know, to, to be able to say, oh, yeah, I, I really didn't do well on that or, you know, yay for me. I didn't get that, you know, article published or or it's fine that things didn't turn out well. And I'm not not to say that, of course, that it isn't, you know, obviously you want to make sure you do as best as you can. but. Also to balance that out for the moments that, you know, you didn't do the best that you, that you had wanted to, but that's okay. It still worked out in a, as a counterbalance. I, I, and, and that's one of the things that I often share with students is it, you had mentioned that I am a licensed psychologist in um, the community. I took my licensing exam three times and that all that ever amounted to was, oh, now, when I work with folks and they come and tell me that they're struggling with failure, they've struggled with something that didn't turn out the way that they hoped to, that I don't pull from my experience of those perfect experiences. I pull from those moments of, of, of 
embracing um, imperfection, I guess. So that's kind of the one thing, and particularly now in times of great uncertainty, that there is something about leaning into that it isn't known, it isn't perfect, and it just might be messy. And I wonder if returning to that would, would help higher education in some way. I'm glad that you shifted in that direction because that is something I, I wanted to to hear a bit about is is about how you how your your private work in that psychology practice intersects uh, with your research and your teaching. Well, uh, oftentimes, I, and I think for many many different disciplines in higher ed, there's this wall between sort of the research and the practice or the theoretical mm -hmm. and the applied. I mean, we even go insofar to call certain things professional schools. And and one of the things that happens with that wall is absolutely it keeps, you know, specific areas defined. It makes things clear, but it also creates a an imaginary division between the sort of this is my favorite professional world, the squishiness of life. You know, life is kind of squishy. And one of the things that my practice allows me to do is to say, okay, in my research, here's some theoretical constructs or models or hypothesis that we explore. How does it really um, apply itself with just day-to-day human interaction I see in my practice. But also, conversely, there are many things that come up during, say, a session with somebody that I'm working with that I realize, wait a minute, we do, we do want to answer that question. There is a hypothesis that just came up, not from a, a scientist or a researcher, but for somebody who is um, pulling it from lived experience. So it becomes what I feel a very, um, not just only a two-way street, becomes a really sort of holistic way of, of making sure that what we think uh, and what we believe matches what we really experience or feel or do in life. And in psychology, it might seem to be a lot clearer, right, that sort of linkage. But I would imagine any discipline that in any major or program has that opportunity to be able to say, how does this theory really get squishy? And how does, in the squishiness, is there something we can pull out and better define? And that's something that um, I found to be a really beneficial thing, is that it, it's allowed a lot more capacity to actually ask more questions than in, in the knowledge that I think that I have it through research or in practice. So it, 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 I find it very enriching and I find that it is uh, constantly intriguing and constantly um, challenging all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, philosophically speaking, it's always been the case that the humanities and social sciences have seen themselves engaged with the issues of the world. Um, but as a practical matter, it seems like it's becoming, there's more and more interest now in really seeing those connections uh, happen in a much more concrete way. You know, it's, it, it's interesting because the one thing that is always been surprising to me is how many elements of social science and the humanities, when we're in an academic sense, 
that we write in a way that isn't always as accessible or as digestible an application as it could be. Now, I, I, I again, I don't want um, to endorse this idea that we don't write or communicate in a way that is valid and credible and in some ways academic, but I think we also could become equally as conversant in making sure that, that we make the language accessible to be applied, not just for the researchers or the professors, but for the very parts of humanity that are connecting to us. I think technology has done a terrific job in opening that up. I think that that's been one of the things that's been really encouraging and exciting is that you are starting to see greater sort of bridges. And so in that way, I, I hope we continue to do that. I hope we continue to be able to be multilingual in, you know, sort of the research that we do and, and to have different types of dialects to which we communicate it to the world that we're studying and we're examining and that we think about application also includes audience. You know, can anybody sort of say, I, you know, I'm really curious about this. Oh, it, oh, I see. That's what sociologists do. And that's what sociology means or that's what information sciences means, things like that. So I think that 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 part is what I hope is also part of application that we become um, conversant in different ways about knowledge and that we connect it on multiple layers, including through technology and written word in a technical space. Yeah. The, uh, you mentioned about how the, the application is sometimes considered a bit, perhaps less than in the yeah. academy. Uh, the same often is said for a lot of the multicultural research, like, like you do. Much of your research has examined minority populations of one sort or another for example, your studies of suicide factors among Asian American, African American college students. What have been the biggest joys and the largest hurdles for you in terms of focusing so much of your research career in these directions? Well, one of the things that has been the largest challenge um, was that mental health had such a stigma associated to it, even though the term is mental health, it immediately was interpreted as mental illness, right? that mm -hmm. there's actually two parts to mental, to mental health. And one of the uh, biggest challenges was when you have that stigma, it immediately closes conversation. And it also sort of it makes it seem that any type of endeavor to understand that could not possibly have a positive or an enriching element to it. That it was actually that early on, it seemed as if you went down that path, all it would do is to bring you to a place that would be challenged. And and I I, I really kind of almost like to look at the the other side of the same coin, in that. When I started to go into this, this space, the space of suicide, um, particularly was to begin to look at, look at suicide and say, you know, there, there, that is one of the hardest and most painful things that anybody can go through personally or even, you know, begin to attempt suicide and for those around them. But there's also the fact that if I'm researching this, there are survivors. 
right? That there are people that might have been there and then stepped back from it or that could come back and say, this experience was like this, but this is how I endured. This is how I grew. This is how I became dynamic. And similar to what I mentioned earlier about, you know, sort of this interest in and benefit of being multilingual was to understand it, not just as a linguistic way, but to understand it in a diverse way. You know, does does the idea of despair or redemption or or recovery, how does it vary? Because then it broadened the story. It broadened it. And and that I think that broadening, that that interest, that sort of delving into things that might scare us or might make us feel afraid actually opens up the really narrow space that is stigma. To be able to say, you know, maybe one way to talk about something that scares people is to actually talk about the beautiful parts of it. I mean, the oxymoron, is there beauty to suicide? There is. Because there are other other elements there as well. Uh, one particular thing that uh, had happened early on was, um, you know, my first my dissertation actually was on um, Asian American suicide, and at the time, uh, they had not, you know, my department had never embraced a qualitative study. You know, they were very much um, saying, "How do you really know what you're finding if it isn't quantified?" and I remember thinking, huh, Kim, maybe I ought to do the easier path and try to say, just do your quantitative study now and then do qualitative later. And and I thought, no, I can't imagine, you know, not being able to say that suicide among Asian Americans needed to be done in their own words. And I was glad that I kind of you know, stood my ground on that because I believed it and I thought it was important. And if I, and I look back now thinking that what felt like a challenge probably was the absolute uh, opportunity later on to say, oh, why not? You know, why not try different things? So what's the worst that would happen? So, so in that regard, yes, there are definitely um, challenges that occur when you want to attempt to do something that hasn't been before, you know, especially if you take an endeavor trying to be a why notter, it is hard to shake off the yeah, buts. But I, I think of challenge as sort of that friction point of feeling like that's exactly where, where I, anyone should be because it's, it's, it's new ground. It's something that will, make you stay with it. And um, of course, fast forward um, 10 years later, since my dissertation, one of the things that has really appeared in my life, of course, is the extremely high suicide rate of veterans. And mm-hmm. that um, was something that I could translate immediately that if to study a cultural group was more than just race or ethnicity, that a cultural group can be, say, a culture of veterans. And to be mm-hmm. able to to address that with the same tool set and to not be as afraid of stigma really started to open doors. So so I I believe that in that way, um anytime there's sort of a a stigma that means that the path is narrow and there's always an opportunity to make it wider by taking it on through different ways. 
Hmm. Of course, we're having this conversation in the time of COVID. And I wonder if uh, that stigma, say, around mental health is something that this situation will help to alleviate. Uh, Because perhaps, do you think maybe it's becoming normative to think about others' mental health right now? Darby, you are spot on. As a matter of fact, when uh, I'm often asked, what what do you consider some positives about a pandemic is that one of the things is that it has made the awareness, the experience, the openness of of saying this is hard, that I am struggling to be something that is more um, shared as opposed to stigmatized. And one of the things that that is an opportunity now is that. Awareness is very important. And once we've reached this high level of awareness of, of mental uh, things that are making us struggle, one of the things we can begin to move together towards is what I call um, stress resilience, or a lot of people call stress resilience. The stress is there. The stress isn't something that um, is going to maybe go away in the short term, but it is this, this opportunity to begin the pathway of resilience and resilience is definitely not a, a term or an experience or a human endeavor that we can seek. It, it's, it's something that sort of presents itself to us. It's something that comes from the outside and to which we have to respond. And one of the things that is a benefit is we can respond more broadly together. We can respond from each of our own empathy, not just as something that we support, but something we are experiencing ourselves. And that I, that I think is, is something that's happening, um, most importantly during a time now where we're facing sort of this common stressor. And one of the things that I think that's also incredibly uh, beneficial is the fact that the term health now is automatically making sure to add mental health, that the divide between sort of like your your mind and your body is finally um, not such a great divide, that, uh, that we begin to kind of see each other in a whole sense, as opposed to a, a uh, to your point when you said norm, you know, I always tell folks that abnormal just generally means what most people are not doing. But if it is the norm that we're struggling, then, then yeah, it's starting to normalize the abnormal, if you will. One of the things that I hope too is that, um, it immediately, immediately addresses one of the, the biggest factors is that you're not alone. And we're not alone. We truly are not. Kim, I'd like you to, if you don't mind, turn the lens that you normally uh, apply to others uh, onto yourself for a moment. You've achieved the rank of associate professor. And I think a lot of folks, even within the orbit of academia, often don't think too much about the ways in which life and expectations and needs can be quite different at different career stages for faculty. What is most important to you as an associate professor that might be different from, say, earlier in your career? Definitely. You know, I had read somewhere that 
you know, one of the toughest spaces in a faculty member's career was this space kind of in the middle called the associate professor. And that intrigued me because at the time I, I was an assistant professor untenured. And of course I thought of it, thought of that as gracious. How hard could it be? You've, you've made tenure, you know, but, but really what I came to realize was that sometimes along the way, um, having that singular focus, right. You know, from the beginning part of your educational career to that moment where you're an associate professor and his tenure is sort of losing the horizon of what that means because it's such a singular point. Everything's so focused on that moment. And so one of the things that I think is, is very different um, if, in my journey is that in many ways, because uh, this is my second career, in many ways, because of the fact that I was in kind of an accidental professor in some ways, is that when I kind of got to associate professor, I saw it as a time to say, fantastic, you know, I can now go and take all of these experiences I've had in my life, you know, from my first career in business to all the hyphens of who I am in my identity as, you know, a first generation woman of color, all of those things. Now I can really sort of say, what, what would I do? Now that I have all of this span to run with now, and I think that that's one of the things that is almost a little bit harder first, because again, you've been so focused on the singular point. Now, again, uh, my, my situation's a little bit different, I suppose. And what I explained earlier about being at Fayetteville State is because my tenure track journey was in such a diverse environment and students had such diverse needs. I think personally for myself, it was a sort of a much easier way to kind of feel like I can diversify the different things I would get myself interested in. If I wanted to shift gears now in my research or I wanted to, you know, take a class on and do something different and do something like do adaptive learning just because I wanted to. So personally for myself, I've been very lucky to have had that constant reminder that there's so many other different ways, different worldviews, different opportunities, different things that you can do, that if if a faculty member at associate professor has not as much access to that kind of constant diversity, I think a great a piece of advice I would give is go seek it, you know, go find an experience or an environment that is it that is quite different than what you've been in. And that kind of goes back full circle to my initial journey of, you know, deciding um, to go to an HBCU cross country in a state I'd never been in before I went on interview for it, that to to give yourself your own set of diversity, to to create in your own way these experiences that then at the associate professor um level is to use that tenure or to use that stage in your career as a launching point to just take risks because, you know, you know, you know of all the things you've accomplished. You know that you know how you've been doing things the way you have been. Now go try something completely different. Um, so that that for me is what being an associate has meant. You know, oftentimes um, 
I've been asked at what point or what will I do or when do I think I'd be ready to be full professor? And you know, I don't, I don't think I ever will be. I think that I don't mind kind of being here. Now, even if the, you know, the publications get to the point where I can or any of those things, I, for me personally, on that personal lens, I kind of like my life being an open sentence without a punctuation or if, if you will. So I think that's <laughs> how it's been for me, you know, in regards to how this is how I um, think of it. Um, and again, you know, I, I come from a, a sort of an, a, a sort of a different perspective. Um, again, you know, having a, a career in the private sector, having a career in business, deciding one day I just wanted to shift completely and go become a psychologist. And I remember my business mentor saying, Kim, why on earth would you do this? And I said, you know, why not? So, uh, again, when I'm, when I, when I have all these sort of like unconventional ideas, I generally then blame it on the fact I'm left-handed. So I figured that taking a bunch of left turns will still, it'll still be fine. It'll still work out. What about in terms of the supports, the, the sorts of supports or, or help that you need at this level? So one of the things, um, in regards to, supports is, you know, a lot of times, it, you know, I've shared a lot of sort of my uh, sort of like compass, what kind of uh, keeps me going um, every day. Now, one of the things that um, I definitely do think at the associate level is incredible support is to be able to see those who have progressed on to professor, full professor, administrators, deans, People outside in the industry, you know, people out in the community, people out in your environment that have um, sort of done your pathway differently as well as similarly to you and are kind of willing to kind of reach back and build sort help you build sort of your next direction. Um, I have a tendency to be very curious and to go and sort of seek forth those things. But if you have a different way of doing it, I do think that the structures in place that, you know, anybody who has had three to five years of being an associate professor or above professor administrator, I think that it is vitally important to to reach back and to build a relationship with somebody that is about three to five years behind you. Now, it, one of the things I'd recommend is while institutions can kind of put that into place, I, I think it's good for each of us to, to challenge ourselves to do that. So one of the things I do think that is, is important is I, as an associate professor, as I sought out supports of people who have gone before me, I made it a, I, I made it a big point to make sure to connect with professors that are at the assistant level or at um, the adjunct or fixed term and gra graduate students that aren't actually the ones that I teach to ensure that that it's a, a continuous scaffold and support structure. Now, one of the things is that it is, I think, sort of a value that HBCUs have, this idea of a community and a community on your campus and that it is something that is reinforced quite a bit. And I think that that has been very helpful, but even at a larger university or a, uh, which again, you know, I had gone to predominantly white and in some cases, extremely large universities be, as a student is that just to create your own, um, 
support structures because sometimes what's in place, you know, sometimes even if your school assigns you a mentor, sometimes, you know, it's good to kind of um, have that culture, that culture that everybody feels like they are um, wanting, willing, and able to kind of have um, support around you. Now, in regards to um, just nuts and bolts, the old business side of me coming out is if you're in an environment, particularly, uh, or a school that has a thinner budget, is to get, you know, creative on how training can look. I mean, sometimes you, sometimes there isn't money or finances to do official training or do official um, mentoring workshops. You know, I, I uh, put together with, uh, with different faculty on campuses, we do, we do a monthly sanity lunch. And we'd all get together and we literally called it sanity lunch and, you know, put it on our calendars and just make it a point to schedule it in, to reach out and sit with other folks that you can really kind of in a even informal way stay connected with, can be able to talk to, can be able to just be able to be real during that moment. Um, and of course, a lot of this is, is, Around, you know, we speak so much about collegiality and we speak so much about teamwork. I mean, I just call this just everyday human work, everyday connected work. And those are things that um, I think hopefully we can change the idea that we're just glued to our desks all the time. And that is also still applicable in our COVID world where we're sort of glued to our Zooms, you know. It's okay to, to, to kind of break what's becoming sort of a standard way that we do things when we all get on meetings, things like that. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, as you know, this, uh, one of the primary audiences for this podcast is library students, librarians, and others who provide support for humanists and social scientists. Who in your community have been the unsung heroes who have helped you in accomplishing what you have? The people who may have helped you, but not even maybe realized how much. Oh, I have to tell you without a doubt, anybody who's ever helped me find a resource. You know, I, I, I oftentimes think that one of the things that is is a problem is similar to I spoke about in regards to to stigma or just having ideas that get cemented into place is that I think we the unsung heroes I've had I'm going to change the word from information sciences or uh, library students I'm going to take those words off the table and I'm going to say just curiosity just enablers, right? Just knowledge sharers. That's just like, and, and, and to begin to kind of um, get ourselves away from thinking that, you know, oftentimes, for example, you know, I'll, I, whenever I have an idea and I, and I'm thinking about, oh, how can I do this? The biggest hero for me in, in the things that I've done was working with my um, library or uh, information resources around having open resources. I mean, that was revolutionary. The, the idea that, you know, when we, well, we often are, under budget constraints, that there's this entire world of resources that's out there, that's free, that being Darby, you opening my world up to a podcast right now and feeling like, oh, I could be someone who could do one, not just listen to one, you know? And those are mm -hmm. those are really the unsung heroes are the folks 
and I'm going to use it as an example that just kind of says, hey, Kim, have you ever considered X? And those are these really small micro conversations that have changed my life, you know, and I know it's important to have all the workshops and it's important to do all that, the outreach, but that personal touch of a single person who had this resource or had this idea that just said, have you ever thought about? And that has been every step of my journey in education, because to be completely frank, I had no intention of going to the community college. I actually intended to kind of, you know, um, have an entire career as being the best food, you know, um, back then we were called waitresses. Now we're food servers and move up to be a bartender. And it was somebody who said, you know what? Have you ever thought about? Have you ever considered? So if, as I say to the audience is that everybody each of you have this incredible thing that's exciting about how to access knowledge, how to learn something new, how, you know, there's this piece of information that someone doesn't know. And you're absolutely sort of like the the ambassadors to that by something as incredible as I think some, there's something really interesting you might want to consider. That's sort of, I guess what it's saying is that it's not just the unsung hero is that they, that that y'all have taken unsung, heroic, cool little moments to to connect me to something I never knew or ever thought of, you know. And that those moments that happen are are the most incredible ones. And that I I also think that you know making sure that we don't get stuck in our say our old nomenclature around the word library or you know get having somebody think that um their idea of what that means you know it's really great to make sure you update us all <laughs> you know like no really you know have you thought about so those that's definitely my my take on those moments that stick with me forever cuz even right now Darby, I, this is going to stick with me. Like, this is really a cool idea. How about that? Well, Kim, thank you so much. And thank you for this wonderful conversation. You are truly a tremendous loss to the profession of bartending. <laughs> and that is so much to our benefit in higher education. <laughs> well, well, you know, considering that, you know, Bar, well, not right now during COVID, but bars and, and, and institutions of higher education seem to have approximate relationship is what I think still happens. But thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you so much for just a wonderful conversation. I really, I really appreciate it. And I know that there are a lot of folks out there who are going to appreciate this. Great. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this week's episode. This is your host, Darby Orcutt. Be sure to subscribe to Momentum HSS on Apple Podcast, Overcast, or wherever you may listen to your podcast. If you enjoy the show, please rate, review, and share it with a friend. And until next time, keep up the momentum.